May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. We've just heard two texts read aloud, each of which cry out for some serious reflection. Yet they're so different one from the other in genre and in the issues that they raise that you wonder how they ended up on the same Sunday in the lectionary cycle of readings. To presume to preach one seamless sermon that does anything even close to justice to both would be presumptuous and probably a bit misguided. So I'm going to set the text from Job aside as we'll be revisiting that great and unsettling book over the next three Sundays. And so I'll be working with it in some detail. In the three-year cycle of readings, Jesus' words on divorce come up twice. Once in the year in which we work our way through the gospel according to Matthew, and once when we're working in Mark. Would have been about 18 months ago, that we hit that point in Matthew. And that evening, someone from this community who's lived through a divorce and is now very happily remarried came up to me and said, it seems like we just had that reading. I can't believe it came up again. And to be honest, I always feel the same way. Every 18 months, a version of the same dialogue with the Pharisees that Jesus has is read. They come to test Jesus, it says. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And every 18 months, the same bottom line is stated. Yes, the law of Moses permits divorce as a way of working with what Jesus calls the hardness of the human heart. And yet, there is a higher law, or a more ancient standard located in the created order. From the beginning of creation, Jesus says to the Pharisees, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, those are citations from the beginning of the book of Genesis, which Jesus quotes to the Pharisees and which give authority to what then follows. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, that final line is pronounced as part of the sealing of a marriage covenant in the wedding liturgy of this church, at which I have presided many, many, many times. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder, is the way the liturgy puts it. And at that point in the service, the couple is standing here, pretty much in front of me, facing each other. Their hands are joined, and my stole has been taken and wrapped around their hands as a sign of their binding. I will, by the time I say that, have pronounced that they are husband and wife in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then those words come, let no one put asunder. I've learned to say the words boldly 
without letting them catch at all in my throat. But I never say them lightly or without a deep awareness of their force. Because as many of you are aware, part of the story of my own life involved putting asunder a marriage bond. And I've learned that I can't dance around that truth. So the fact that every 18 months or so one of these texts comes up, I have to wrestle again. I'm divorced. Yes, I'm remarried, coming on 15 years, but divorced all the same. I can get behind the text, do some thinking about what informed Jesus in this teaching. As Larry Hurtado, the New Testament scholar, notes, the effect of Jesus' position forbidding divorce was to reject the notion that the wife was the man's property and to insist upon recognition of the woman's rights in marriage based on the original creation pattern. For a woman to be given what was called a certificate of dismissal, isn't that a cold phrase? To be given a certificate of dismissal from her husband was tantamount to being sentenced to a life of poverty and of shame. And here... Jesus effectively says, that's not on anymore. And he does it by appealing to the created order, to the nature of life and relationship. And then there's the matter of this being a test that the Pharisees were putting before him. In the immediate background was the case of Herod. Now, we had that story not all that long ago. You might remember it. Herod, who had married his brother's wife while his brother was still very much alive. John the Baptist had spoken publicly against that particular divorce and remarriage and had ended up jailed, ultimately executed for his words. Maybe the Pharisees can back Jesus into a kind of John the Baptist-like corner, which would be a good way of getting rid of him. His response to their test, though, was to press behind the law of Moses and to move into the order of creation. Quite frankly, a brilliant rhetorical move, taking them into something they just couldn't dispute. Yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. For once out of the public limelight, the disciples ask him for a bit more detail about all this. And so he says to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, the commentators sometimes observe that even raising the idea that a wife, she, could divorce her husband and then marry another man, in even raising that possibility, Jesus is actually pointing directly at the case of Herod and his particular situation with his divorced sister-in-law. Jewish law, you see, had no provision whatsoever for a woman initiating a divorce. So is that what he's talking about? Is it all about Herod again? Well... Even if Herod's illicit marriage is in view, the words remain very 
very strong. That the two shall become one is offered as being of the very stuff of the order of creation. And that to separate it, to put it asunder, is to violate the way that things are intended to be. That's a pretty strong pronouncement. Not only that, but remarriage then seems forever under the taint of adultery somehow. What to do with all of that? What do I do with all of that? Well, the worst thing any of us can do is to act like Jesus never said any of it. Or, if he did say it, to suggest he really didn't mean it. He was really talking about Herod, not me, not you, not, 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 not this world. That's always a problem. It's always a deep problem to imagine he somehow didn't mean what he said. Whether dealing with a passage on divorce and remarriage, his words in the Sermon on the Mount about daring to forgive one's enemies, oh, he didn't really mean that or any of the other texts that we find hard to integrate into our systems, into our thought worlds, into our preferences. You can't just push it aside. The only Jesus we can really know is the Jesus of the four Gospels. And according to the accounts of three of the four, this teaching is part of what he left us. So I think where it leaves us is in a place of radical honesty. Sure, our social world is constructed differently from that of the Judea of 2,000 years ago. But the claim Jesus is making about relationships and the order of creation seems to suggest that social context is only so important. When our marriages are put asunder, it marks a break in the intended order of things. It's just not the way it was supposed to have worked out. It's not what was hoped for on that wedding day. And when all the finger-pointing and all the blaming ceases, there's a loss, a cost, and a deep wounding for all involved. And there needs to be an acknowledgement of sin. As I suggested last week, sin generally has little to do with moral failing and much to do with the decisions and default settings that keep us from being what we were intended, created to be. And that's just so often what's at the heart of failed relationships, a failure to be what we were called to be. I suspect everyone who's married knows something of this. I mean, you might not have put the whole works asunder, but in the course of day-to-day life, most of us pop an awful lot of stitches and seams. And if we don't go back and attend to those, to what we've done, well, you imagine where it might go. So we have to take these texts very, very seriously. For those of us who are married, we have to not only take our vows seriously, but also the day-to-day work of being in relationship. We have to admit that in all likelihood, we will, have, we will with some regularity manage to pop a relational stitch or two, which is all the more reason not to take them for granted.
Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Haven't we also got text after text after text in which Jesus looks at the most broken, vulnerable, and yes, sinful people, and his response is this abundant and overflowing grace and mercy. Get up off the ground and start walking again. It's a Samaritan woman who's had a string of husbands. It's a tax-collecting collaborator with the enemy army. It's a woman caught in the very act of adultery. It's a best friend who, in the panic of the moment, denies even knowing him. It seems that such things will not keep Jesus away, that he keeps lifting people up out of the dirt, dusting them off, and saying, now begin again. And according to John, it was at a wedding feast that Jesus offered his first miracle, that of turning water into wine, lots and lots and lots of really, really good wine. This suggests that not only did he see wedding feasts as good and life-giving symbols of abundant possibility, but also that by grace, plain old water is liable to become the best of wine. Broken people are liable to be reconciled. Sinful people are liable to be raised up. Hurt people are liable to be given the chance to begin yet again. In Christ, the deepest of wounds and the most painful of failures can be reconciled. And so, we need not fear even the hardest of these gospel texts. Amen.